Good evening. Tonight we are going to be talking about rubbish. You're listening to the spotlight, and I'm not. Ladies, gentlemen, please take your seats. The spotlight is about to begin. Good evening, everybody. I'm Mystery Matt, and it's raining. Thank you for joining us on this part two of our Nature versus Nurture. I slowed that down so I could say it. <laughs> I even tried typing it earlier, and it came out Nature versus Nature. I'm like, no, no, that's, you know, plot lines and stuff when you go to set up who's the hero and stuff like that, you know? Right. I'll, I'll tell right. you when you're older. Anyways, this evening we've got Sarah and Nancy returning for the second part. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook. Uh, that's where I put the podcast first. Um, I don't even know if Spotify puts it out as quick as I do. Anyways, I'll turn it over to you ladies and I'm going to keep watching these microphones. It might be a different day. Or it could be the same day. Anyways, um, in part one last week we began our coverage of the long debate of whether serial killers are born to kill or are they made that way. We talked about how John Wayne Gacy grew up in a very abusive and volatile home, and Wayne Bertram Williams grew up in a stable, loving home with two non-abusive parents. One, Gacy fell under nurture, and the other, Williams, under nature. So, let's start with our first subject, or our third subject? I guess it's, he's our third subject. Gary Leon Ridgway was born on February 18, 1949, to Mary and Thomas Ridgway, and was one of three boys. From a young age, Gary never felt like he belonged and felt like it felt like an outcast in his own family. He was slow, dyslexic, and had trouble recalling things. Early on, Gary began to fantasize about violence, which eventually led to arousal. He also fit the homicidal triad, animal cruelty, bedwetting, and arson. Ridgway killed both birds and the family's cat. He wet the bed until he was 13 and started fires as early as 8 years old. The Ridgway family moved a lot, making Gary feel like he was never settled. His mother would get annoyed with Gary for his bedwetting. She would put him in the bathtub and she would wash his legs, genitals, and rear end. He later admitted that her cleaning him would turn him on. She never knowingly or intentionally molested Gary and she never got angry at him of his bedwetting. His mother was tough but fair and he never held any resentment towards her. She spent time with him and helped with reading. Gary used to watch his mother change in her bedroom and had sexual fantasies about her. Gary saw his mother as a sexual object. Even though Gary loved his mother, he fantasized about stabbing her. Wait, 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 wait. <laughs> Back the fuck train up. How do you wait, go from, yeah, I'd really like to fuck that, to, you know what, I'd really like to stab it, have it bleed all over the floor and die. Like, how do because you... Because to these kind of people, stabbing is the same as sex. If you actually... But how is it the same? Stabbing... Emulates the same motion as sexual intercourse. Yeah, but one feels way better than the other. Well, yeah. Why That's because you're normal-ish. I don't understand this no. shit. Anyway, here, take this back. All right. Sorry, I have a question. Yeah. You said the triad. Yeah. What does bedwetting have to... Well, apparently, if you're... You know, you have to be potty trained. You should be potty trained by a certain age. Yes. Say you're potty trained by age two. 
which to me most children should between be. two and three yeah yeah okay we'll stretch it to three um <laughs> sorry i'm very opinionated on that kids should be potty trained before they hit three um say you, you don't have any is- issues with bedwetting from the time you've been potty trained but at a certain age you say you start wetting the bed again around eight for some reason it's just i don't know how it correlates directly but a lot of these serial killers have a lot all three of these homicidal triad attributes or two or th- at least two of them and he has all three so that's why I'm just reporting it. So it's it's a, like a correlation. It's correlation. They okay. find that this is correlated with amongst a lot of serial murderers. Huh. Yeah. So yeah. Anyways. Yeah. So Mary Bridgeway was a very strict, God-fearing Catholic, and those views would stick with Gary. She once told him that masturbation was the greatest sin of all, even worse than raping someone. <laughs> I'm Jeez. laughing. Matt, you'd be a sinner. <laughs> I'm, I'm laughing because like we I are grew all up Catholic, sinners. Catholic school. And that was not probably in it. Oh, we that that was a sin. That's oh, well, a sin. yeah, but not greater than wa- raping women. No, you were supposed to. Su- you were supposed to suppress all your sexual urges, right? Until you got married. Only you, sex was only for for baby making, procreation. Right. That explains why y'all don't believe in birth control. You just want to fuck, 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 fuck. Uh, pop, 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 pop. Was, was, I know. Uh, it, it's not something that. Yeah. Now it's more so like common. But not for long at a church church in Stony Creek. Mm -hmm. uh, Also, when you talk about like abortion and stuff too, in a church in Stony Creek, there is a statue designated to all of the babies that have been killed in abortion. Hmm. Interesting. I don't want to talk about abortion because that's a hot topic for me. Yeah. Um, Not that I've never had one, but talk talk about putting your opinions. Yeah. Yeah. In stone. <laughs> no shit. <laughs> All right. So there would be some anger directed towards the young Gary. He was picked on and bullied by his peers, but his father would yell at him for that. I don't understand why you would yell at your son for him being bullied. I would be yelling at the bullies, but that's just the kind of parent I am. But from a father's point of view, it could be man up, buck up. Yeah. You know, come on, grow a set. Fucking son- punch the best. Exactly. Yeah. Fight back. Yeah. But Thomas Ridgway taught his son how to fix things and work on cars. Clearly, there isn't any serious red flags like there was in the Gacy case. Mary Ridgway ruled and controlled the family household. She was in charge of everything. No doubt the mixture of her control, skewed religious beliefs, and unintentional sexual overtures would heighten Gary's already budding sexual sadistic desires, which developed early. At the age of 12, Gary began to stalk girls. He began, became a peeping Tom, was obsessed with sex, and began to find ways to brush up against girls. His violent side peaked through around 13 or 14 years of age. In junior high, Gary attacked a six-year-old boy who was just walking home. Gary waned in a bush, and when the boy walked by him, he stabbed him, piercing one of his kidneys. Luckily, the boy survived, but he never identified as attacker. This gave Ridgway that feeling of power and control over another person, and he liked it a lot. I'm sorry, he's 12? He was about 13 or 14. Oh. Yes. Oh, if you could see Nancy's face right now. Goodness. I should take a picture for the ticky tuck. <laughs> <laughs> um, mm-hmm. Yeah, that that's a lot to unpack, don't you think? Uh-huh. Yeah. Not sure where to go, though. Yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> so Ooh. Gary vandalized his school as a way to lash out when, he, when they made him repeat a grade. He was very introverted, and he got lost a lot. He also suffered from severe allergies. 
Ridgway graduated high school at 20 years of age and joined the Navy after marrying his girlfriend. The two moved to San Diego and he was sent to the Philippines. While overseas, his wife would cheat on him, but he too wasn't a saint. Ridgway engaged in sex with Filipino prostitutes and contracted a venereal disease from one of them. That pissed Ridgway off. He and his wife, number one, divorced in less than a year of marriage. Gary would re remarry in 1973 and they would have a son in 1975. But Gary had a voracious sexual appetite and his wife struggled to keep up. He wanted sex two to three times a day and liked risky sex like outdoors or in cars. He even enjoyed a little BDSM. The thrill of getting caught. Yes, the thrill. Absolutely. <laughs> Apparently Chris likes it too. Um, in one encounter, Gary choked wife number two and that scared her quite a bit. She couldn't take it anymore and they divorced in 1981. So yeah. I don't think I would enjoy getting a venereal disease, but I don't think that would make me an asshole enough to murder people. Then again, depends on the disease. Mm. So not long after, Ridgeway would start cruising the Packway, a main strip in Seattle near the SeaTac Airport in July. Oh, sorry. In July of 1982, he would pick up a sex worker, the first of his 50 victims. During the early part of the murders, Ridgeway was arrested for soliciting and even given a polygraph test, which he passed, and the police let him go. It was clear to law enforcement that the man responsible had a deep-seated hatred for women. They would later glean that Ridgway harbored anger because of all the humiliation he suffered at the hands of women. The prostitute who gave him VD, his two ex-wives, his mother, just to name a few. Killing Seattle's prostitutes was his way to assert dominance and control so he could humiliate the women. I think this one, out of the four, creeped me the most out. And I think it's the mother thing. Yeah. Because how do you, you go, like you had said, like, how do you, how do you, like, can't, I can't wrap my head around that. It's like trying to go from zero to a hundred in a freaking minivan in like two seconds. Yeah. That, I have a hard time, like. It's a hard time grasping that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure Freud would have a lot to say about that. Oh, this is totally a Freudian case. Yes. So it's the next one. Um, <laughs> but yeah, Definitely. At his job where he painted trucks, he would often refer to women as sluts and harlots. He was even reprimanded for sexual harassment, as he would often find ways to touch his female co-workers. Yeah, he's a dirty motherfucker. So, Anyways. sorry, he, his main source of anger was Towards women. being rejected by women um, and his Humiliated, mom, too. And humiliated and his mom being strict. Mm -hmm. Okay. From what I've gleaned from the case. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Pumpkin? Uh, no, muffin. Aw. Come here, let me pat you on the head. No, I'll Let's feel sorry for the head. you. I'll give you a reason to fucking turn Which, out like a where dick. Did he, where did he fall in the line of siblings? Think he was the youngest? Okay. Maybe? I don't remember. I knew this, but I don't remember. That's something you could Google. Um, Just like many other serial murderers, Ridgeway paid close attention to the media. He was dumping the bodies in or around the Green River, which is how he is referred to as the Green River Killer. Shortly after the media and the police picked out his locations, Ridgeway changed dump sites, now leaving bodies in wooded areas near SeaTac Airport. Gee, that sounds like Williams, doesn't it? Only backwards? Mm -hmm. Yeah, <laughs> it's kind of weird how they, they kind of... You see a lot of similarities between these three killers. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Ridgeway would once again take a bride, Judith, in 1985. He seemed to stop killing and told investigators later that he used yard work to ease his anger. Ridgeway and Judith lived the quiet and mundane life. She was older than her husband, and the church-going couple thrived. 
Ridgway stayed out of trouble for a while, but later he admitted to killing at least two women after he married Judith, but he's linked to four. At least. At least. Huh. Someone figured out some coping skills. Mm-hmm. So he's not as dumb as he actually is, by the sounds of it. Right? I mean, how do you... Yeah, anyways. 1986, two witnesses go to the police on separate occasions, and the first witness gave the police a description. The second witness picked both the sketch and a mugshot out of the photo lineup of Gary Lee on Ridgeway. In April of 1987, police put Ridgeway under surveillance and searched his home, vehicles, and workplace. Some fiber samples of paint from his paint-spattered overalls, pubic hair, hair, and saliva samples were taken, but nothing was found. DNA was still in its infancy. In 2001, the Washington Crime Lab matched the semen samples from found on the victims with the samples taken from Ridgeway in 1987. On November 30th, 2001, Ridgeway was arrested as he was leaving work. The following month, Gary Leon Ridgeway would plead not guilty, not guilty. The prosecution only had enough evidence to charge him for seven of the 49 murders. They were forced to offer him a plea deal. They will take the death penalty off the table if Ridgeway gives a full, truthful confession and pleads guilty. Because Ridgeway was afraid to die, he took the deal. Over a number of days, he recounted every victim, every detail about the murders. He wouldn't shut up. Ridgeway also took law enforcement to all of the places of the bodies that police had yet to recover. Ridgeway admitted that he didn't know all of their names. He spilled all the tea, but showed no emotions and was indifferent as he gave the gory details. He just wanted to have sex with them and then kill them. It just didn't end there. Infamous serial murderer from Seattle, Ted Bundy, had contacted the investigators early on during the investigation before his execution in 1989 and told them that their suspect likely revisited the bodies and had sex with the corpses. Bundy was right. It is not uncommon for serial killers to return to the victim's bodies and engage in necrophilia and or masturbate at the body sites or on the bodies. It's a way to have power and further possess them. Ridgeway did both, but until he couldn't due to the decomposition settling in. <laughs> I'm sorry, Nancy's face was, I looked up and she had like this weird snarl of disgust on her face. That's what my laugh was about. Not the whole. What, what did you do last night? I went back to the. You know, the body I killed last week to see if I could still have sex with it if it hadn't decomposed yet. Right. I was feeling a little randy. (laughs) (laughs) Jesus. (laughs) Yeah, I can see why you're creeped out, right? The necrophilia thing. But Bundy did it too. Yeah, I... mm. Yeah, Bundy did it as well. I understand that, like, the psychology behind it. Yeah, and it's like you had talked about souvenirs. Like it almost seems to be kind of that. Thing. Yeah, it's like a souvenir to them, I guess, until they can't possess it anymore, and they can revisit the memory. Yeah, because memories are very powerful. And when that no longer works, they tend to escalate. They kill more, more frequently. They have, they lose control eventually and become stupid and they mess up. That's how they get caught. Usually, I just find it not funny. Like ha ha ha, but. Like, funny, gross? Like, dude's like, oh, I just wanted to have sex with them and kill them. Like, that's it. Mm-hmm. No big no big deal. Like, like this, so nonchalant. This is completely normal, what yeah. everybody does. No, nonchalant. You know? Yeah. That's enough to give you nightmares. Oh, goodness. Just like Gacy, Ridgeway would not take responsibility. It wasn't his fault. It was his ex-wives, the women at work, who were getting promoted over him. It was oh, the muffin? Filipino prostitute who gave him VD. The women he killed were just objects to him, objects he could dominate, humiliate, and exert control over. He appeared non-threatening, keeping his son's toys in the truck. He even took his very own son with him on occasion. 
his son would fall asleep in the back. And when he was asked what he would have done if his son woke up and saw him kill someone, what would he have done? Ridgeway replied, probably kill him too. That mm-hmm. that shows this guy is fucking off his rocker. Like, he doesn't care. Like, he just does not Total care. lack of empathy and sympathy. He's a sociopath. Yes. Like, it, it just baffles me. Like, hey, why would you take your son with you? If you have him for the weekend, take a break. Selfish. It, yeah, he's selfish. I do what I do when I do what I want. And when I want it. And when I need it. Mm-hmm. Who fucking cares what other people say? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. So, Gary Ridgway stood before the court to enter his guilty plea to 48 counts of aggravated murder in the first degree. Quote, I killed 48 women listed in the state's Second Amendment information. In most cases, I murdered these women. I did not know their names. Most of the time, I killed them the first time I met, I meet them. And I do not have a good memory of their faces. I killed so many women. I have a hard time keeping them straight. I picked prostitutes because I hate most prostitutes and did not want to pay them for sex. Unquote Gary Ridgway. He delivered his statement without remorse or emotion. The judge who was presiding over the hearing had this to say to Ridgway. Quote, The remarkable thing about you is your Teflon-coated emotions and complete absence of genuine compassion for the young women you murdered. Unquote. The Honorable Judge Richard Jones. Hey, just a side note. So... Honorable Judge Richard Jones is music producer Quincy Jones's brother. Yeah. Rich family. Right? Ridgway was sentenced to 48 consecutive life sentences without the possibility of parole. He was also liable for all fines, which included $50,000 to each victim's families in restitution. Unlike Gacy and Williams, Ridgway was active from 1982 to 2001. So let's break it down. He wasn't abused. His parents were there for him, spent time with him. He had a disability. Sexual obsession started very early. Homicidal triad of animal cruelty, bedwetting, and arson. Violence started at the age of 14, humiliated by women as he reached adulthood. Sociopathic, antisocial behavior, and not intelligent. Nothing? Fucking entitled is what he is. Yeah, that one might have been born broken. Yeah. Yeah. Like shattered. Yeah. Yeah. That one, yeah. So, in my personal opinion, Gary Leon Ridgeway falls nicely under the nature category. I have no trouble saying there were some nurture elements that could correlate or intermingle with the nature aspect. With that said, I personally believe he leans more to the nature side of this debate. I completely agree with you with this one. Yeah? Yeah. Now, um, uh, so... Don't hate me for saying this, but the next subject is probably my favorite serial killer, which is why I saved him for last. And I I want to just state, I don't condone what he did, but I understand and I respect him for how he took responsibility. So we'll get there. Well, he's the only one out of the four that did that took <clears throat> responsibility. Yeah. So our next subject is the blueprint for to the criminal profiling. I'm thinking there was another word that was supposed to be there, but I lost it. Um, (laughs) He was the first serial killer interviewed by Robert Ressler and John Douglas. He talked because he wanted to understand the reasons why he did the things he did. Edmund Emil Kemper III was born to Edmund II and Clarnell. He had two sisters. One was five years older and the other was two years younger. Due to the fact that there are three Edmund Kempers in this story, we'll refer to our subject as Big Ed. Rightfully so. Right. Yeah. He was six foot nine and 290 pounds. 
So Big Ed's father, Edmund, was a former World War II veteran, but despite serving his country, it was his wife, Clarnell, who dominated the household. She was verbally and emotionally abusive towards her husband and son. Edmund was then working as an electrician, but had worked as a testing as testing nuclear weapons and had once described that working with atomic energy was far preferable than being around his wife. Can't say I blame him, and you'll find out more. Big Ed's sister, Alin, said that her mother and brother would fight a lot. She was cruel. Soon Edmund would have enough and leave his family. And Big Ed takes this really hard and felt abandoned and unloved. Soon the verbal abuse from his mother escalated and he was, and she was blamed for her son, blamed her son for her husband leaving her. So Clarnell moved the family to Montana and it is there where Big Ed's treatment would get worse. Clarnell, Clarnell's daughters were each given their own bedroom, but she told her son since he was so big and creepy, she didn't trust him not to hurt his sisters. He had to sleep in the basement. It was dark, and the only light hung from the ceiling that you couldn't turn on until you were already down the stairs. You know, like those swinging light bulbs hanging with the chain? That's what that, that's what it was. That's what he described in interviews. Um, Big Ed was afraid down there and felt like he was being punished for something he hadn't done. According to his sisters, Big Ed had a lot of nightmares and would scream in his sleep. He was eight or nine years old at this time. Aladdin said this is when his bedwetting started, and he became afraid of people. Clarnell told Big Ed that he was dumb and no one would want him. Despite his mother's concern that he would hurt his sisters, Big Ed never did and seemed to have a good relationship with them as a child. At least that's from my understanding, from anything I've read. There's been nothing ever that he's had a bad relationship with them or did anything to hurt them. I genuinely feel bad for this one. Me too. Me too. And I don't even go into like the full details of it, but I go into as much as I can. However, <clears throat> the constant rejection belittling made him angry, and he would start to have violent fantasies. He popped the heads off his sister's Barbie's doll, but honestly, who didn't? I did that all the time. That doesn't make me a homicidal maniac, but I did that, and I used to let them float in the water in my bathtub. And then they would fill up, because you know that hole, and then they would sink, and I'd laugh. Um, okay, maybe I do have some issues. Um, he <laughs> Um, I enjoy I enjoy true crime to calm myself to go to sleep. I have no issues whatsoever. <laughs> oh man, I walked right into that. Uh, <laughs> Whoa, okay. Um, he killed the family's two cats. The more his mother kept harping on him, the worse his anger would build up. So he fit two out of the three homicidal triad: the bedwetting and the animal cruelty. Okay. Um, I never really looked into too much. There was never really enough information correlating with Williams and Gacy. Nothing about the homicidal triad came up. I'm sure there's probably information out there if I looked hard enough. But um, in the summer of 1963, Big Ed decided to return to California to live with his father. Edmund had remarried by this time, but over time, Big Ed started to develop, to develop fantasies about his stepmother. and She began to feel creeped out by him and made him leave. He overheard his father say that he was causing problems in his new life, and that really upset the 14-year-old boy. Edmund took his son to his grandparents and left him with them. His grandmother, Maud Kemper, was also a very domineering woman. His grandfather, Edmund I, we will call him Gramps, was a good man who spent a lot of time with Big Ed. He taught his grandson how to shoot and hunt, which Big Ed really took to. Maybe too much. He settled into life with his grandparents, but like his mother, Maud's dominance was starting to get up, get to him. There really isn't much documented about much abuse on Maud Kemper's part, so there's no way to um, know just how much Big Ed endured while he was in um, California with his grandparents. 
But one day while Gramps was out grocery shopping, Big Ed, who, by the way, was about 14, 15 at this time, um, grabbed his rifle to go out target shooting or to kill some birds. Maude told him no. He shot her twice in the head. Big Ed didn't want Gramps to see his wife like that or have to go on living without her. So when Gramps arrived home, he was shot too. He then called his mother, who told him to call the police. Oh, here it is. At this big t- at this time, Big Ed was a minor. He was 15. And had he had been admitted into an adult facility at a Tascadero State Hospital for the Criminally Insane. So he did <laughs> show some remorse because he didn't want his grandfather to be alone. Yeah. Which... Is opposite of what we've read from the last three subjects. See, I just don't understand how people put these things together. Yeah. You know, um... One, your grandmother tells you no about something so petty. You're like, well, I'm going to kill you now then. Like, wh- how does that go like that? Yeah. I think that, it was... Like that escalated almost like, quickly. No, I've had enough of people telling me I can't or no, I'm not good enough or I can't do this or I can't do that or I can't be with so-and-so. You just end up having a breaking point, I imagine. He seems very childlike. <clears throat> well, you're locked into a basement too, right? Yeah, You're not gonna understanding have that. what I did wrong. Yeah, like not just seems very childlike and being all constantly of... degraded by your mother. Yeah, makes you feel like you're not growing up. You know. Um. So Big Ed adjusted fairly quickly to the hospital. He behaved himself and earned privileges. He was learning from the adult criminals, and as a 15 year old boy, that would leave quite the impression. Kemper was able to hide behind a facade of behaviors from the hospital inmates who had been released. He knew what the staff and doctors wanted. Big Ed's ability to adapt to his situations benefited him while at a Tescadero. He was polite, cooperative, and he was able to hide his fantasies and all his hostility. Big Ed has a very high IQ of 138 to 142. Using that to his advantage, he watched others closely. Using his astute observational skills, he was awarded responsibilities by the psychiatrist. He was handling patient files, psych tests, both giving and scoring them, all the while memorizing the answers. He knew what he needed to score to get out. Big Ed scored perfect and was honorably discharged in 1969 at the age of 20. When a Tescadero released him, they recommended that he should not be released into the custody of his mother and stated that his mother was a precipitating factor of his anger. But the California Youth Authority ignored the recommendation and released Big Ed into Clarinelle's custody. It's Matt really, shakes his head. Really interesting how he thrived <clears throat> in a routinized environment. Mm-hmm. He was given praise, privileges, he was and privileges. He was treated fairly for good behavior, and he was acknowledged and understood and noticed. Yeah. So and everything that he didn't get growing up, he, got he finally got. Yeah. And that is what subsided his urges. Yes, and even and he was released in what sixty nine? Did I say? Um. Yeah. yeah, 69. And I don't think he started killing until 72. So that's good. Like three years before he really starts going down the bad path. So <clears throat> obviously, you know, he, he gets to a breaking point again. Mm-hmm. And it's going to be Claire Nell's fault. It's going to be her fault. Already is. So after his release, Big Ed had a difficult time adjusting. He missed a lot. His entire teen years were spent at a Tascadero and he missed out on all those teen experiences, including dating. Kemper would state that he felt inadequate and intimidated by his lack of experience. To make matters worse, his mother worked as an administrative assistant at the University of California in Santa Cruz, and she would keep telling him that he was not good enough for her girls, meaning the college girls that Clarinelle held in such high regard, and that no one would want him. 
She was a raging alcoholic, blamed him for her three failed marriages, and never let Big Ed forget that it's his fault that she hadn't had sex in years and called him her murderous son. Of course, this upset and angered Big Ed, and all those fantasies started to come back. Because why wouldn't they? When you have a bitch mother like that? Like, fuck. I'm glad the ending of the story. Sorry. Um, <laughs> did I say that out loud? Did you have any, anybody have anything organized or add to that? Okay. I know. I know. I have to ask, though, because I'm, like, breaking for certain points, right? Um, he was very organized and thought out his plans to act out his fantasy. He would do practice runs of picking up hitchhikers, understanding what ruses worked the best to make him seem less threatening, especially as a six-foot, nearly 10-inch man who weighed 282 pounds. Before he could commit murder, he would pick up hitchhikers, pretending he was in a rush to be somewhere important, that he was doing them a favor. He carried on conversations with them, and most of the time he would let them go. During the murders, he would get off on the fear in their eyes and the power that he had felt over them. Big Ed tried a few different methods of killing the co-eds. After the murders, he was calm, cool, and collected, and he would drive around with their bodies in his car, keep them in his own apartment before he would dispose of the bodies. He would keep their heads and have sex with them. When he no longer could use the heads, he disposed of them. One of his victims' heads he took to his mother's house and buried it under Clarinelle's bedroom window face up because... As he once said, his mother always wanted to be looked up to. <laughs> I loved that line. <laughs> right? Big Ed never lacked his sense of humor. <coughs> During his time murdering six co-eds, Big Ed would often frequent the same bar where police and attorneys would go to blow off steam. He made friends with many of them and would have a beer with the same detectives who were investigating his murders. He would sit and listen, and he knew they were nowhere near capturing him. So there you've got that link again between... Instig like insinuating yourself into the investigation of your own crime. So you have, especially in this instance, he now has an idea that he could get away with a hell of a lot more because they had nothing. Nothing on him. But, you know, I don't know if that bugged him or not. Um, so his sister, Lynn, said their mother could make you feel guilty. She was harsh, uptight, and angry. Lynn said her, their mother did a lot to Big Ed, saying cruel things to him his whole life. His breaking point finally happened in April of 1973 on Good Friday, when Big Ed entered his mother's bedroom as she was reading a book and sat down on the side of her bed. Clarinelle asked if he was going to keep her up all night talking, and he said no, told her goodnight, and left. He paced in his room for a while, and once she was asleep, he murdered her. Clarinelle's murder was the most violent one he had committed. The rage behind it during the ordeal was insurmountable. After he had sex with her head, cut her tongue out and vocal cords out, he tried to shove them down the garbage disposal, but it spit them back out, hitting him in the face. Quote, that seemed appropriate, as much as she'd bitch and screamed and yelled at me over so many years, unquote, Edmund the Kemper III. So, yeah, he's got this sense of humor there again. It is gross, but, you know, he sees the humor in it. I guess that's his way of coping. That's our way of coping with many things. <sighs> After killing his mother, he had the foresight to formulate a plan that would allow him to get away from the area and evade police. He, evaded, he invited her friend over and killed her, too. When his mother didn't show up for work on Monday, no one would think anything of it because it wasn't unheard of of Clarinelle taking off for a shopping trip somewhere else. Big Ed then drove 28 hours straight in hopes of escaping, but after not hearing anything on the news about his mother's murder, he stopped in Pueblo, Colorado, and called his friends at the Santa Cruz Police Department. As he attempted to confess and turn himself in, the guys on the phone laughed and hung up on him. He called back and begged them to go to his mother's house. 
Big Ed waited on the phone while the detectives went to the house and they walked into a horrific scene. He was telling the truth. Big Ed tells them that he will wait there for the police to come and get him. The local police came and took Big Ed into custody and when the detectives from Santa Cruz got there to drive him back, he wouldn't stop talking. Kemper tells him everything. He pleads guilty to eight counts of first-degree murder and receives seven life sentences. After his incarceration, Big Ed settled into a routine and benefited from the structure of prison life. It is there that he is approached by the FBI agents, Ressler and Douglas, who wanted to study him and find out about his childhood, the murders, his behavior, and why Kemper killed ten people. It was out of all of this that the Behavioral Analysis Unit was born. Big Ed was more than happy to talk, and more the more he talked to Ressler and Douglas... The more insight to himself he gained and came to understand why he was the way he was. He admitted all that stuff on purpose because he wanted to go back to jail. He wanted the structure, the, you know, oh, good, you didn't get in a fight today kind of thing. Yeah. He, he likes that kind of thing. So he went back to jail on purpose. I, I believe so. And yeah. we'll get more into that too, right? So um, much like you just said. So, like his time at a Tascadero, Kemper was a model prisoner. Only this time, he did not want out. Big Ed had stated many times over the years <laughs> that he should never be let out, and he doesn't want to be let out. He's so afraid of what he might do if he's let out and doesn't want to hurt anybody again. That speaks, that's where I have the respect for him, is that he understands how dangerous and how fucked up he is. That, why, I don't want to hurt people. So, the best way to do that is to stay here. Locked up in prison. I have a good life here. I'm respected. I'm structured. And he can just go on. And nobody fucks with him because he's fucking a giant. Well, he's not fucking a giant. He's a fucking giant. Right? So nobody's going to mess with him. Right? Or he'll tear your head off and fuck it. Oh, exactly. Exactly. Actually, there was an interesting story. And I wish I could remember the main basis of it. But, um... I think it was Robert Ressler who said that at one point he was alone with Kemper in a room and Kemper was uncuffed and unshackled like they always have them. And um, Ressler said that it was weird because they did a, a shift change. So there was nobody watching them. And Kemper said, do you know how easy it would be for me to just come over there and pop your head off you? And Ressler decided that his best bet to survive this was not to show fear or anything. He's like, those guys won't be around for another five, ten minutes. I could easily just pop your head off and eat it or fuck it. And he's like, I'm just kidding with you, buddy. I'm not going to do that. I'm like, like, he could have done it. He could have done it. He had the opportunity and he chose not to. That, that's like so Hollywood, the Joker. Like, But is that his, of, that is oh his God. sense of humor, right? That dark sense of humor. And like, I think that has to be. I think that's how he survives. He survives on that dark sense of humor. If I don't joke about this, I don't know how to deal with it. And we all have that dark sense of humor in certain times where it's not appropriate to have dark sense of humor. Right, Nancy? Welcome to healthcare. <laughs> <laughs> if you don't laugh, you will cry. You know what? I've heard that exact same thing come from uh, crime scene investigators and police officers. If you don't laugh, you cry. Yep. I had a, a woman who passed away in our condo and she was in there for a few days and they didn't know what exactly happened. So they had to wait and I had um, cops sitting outside the door and they were on rotation. One came left to go get food and he came back and i said are you gonna you want to eat that down here he goes oh no i'm going back to my door i'm like you can eat he's like yeah he goes you learn to deal with it he goes sometimes it makes you hungry just sitting there guarding a body 
And I'm like, oh, okay. And then he laughed as he went up the stairs. Anyways, it was. I get that. Yeah. So. But anyways, at his time in prison, he was given the responsible task of scheduling other inmates' psychiatric appointments, made ceramic cups, and narrated audiobooks for the blind. He actually coordinated that prison program and completed over several hundred recordings. In 1988, and this is this is what I love. This, this is what I love. In 1988, both Edmund Kemper and John Wayne Gacy spoke to the FBI class at Quantico via satellite. Kemper was very open, candid, descriptive, and took responsibility where Gacy was the exact opposite and still placed blame on others, maintained his innocence, and never took responsibility. Kemper made a statement that stands out even today, one I think about. He said there's a need to keep heinous murderers alive, not execute, but in prison and council so law enforcement can learn from them so as to prevent other would-be murderers from going down that path. Again, that speaks to his character, him knowing himself. Yeah. And taking responsibility and showing remorse and saying, I don't want to do this again. Mm-hmm. Where I'm sure the others were, they, they haven't taken any responsibility. All three of the other subjects we've talked have not taken responsibility for anything. Well, Ridgeway a little bit, but that's just to get off the death penalty, right? Mm-hmm. So let's break it down. Verbally and emotionally abused, maybe add neglect to this. Oh, absolutely. Felt abandoned and unloved. He was treated like a criminal before the age of 10 by his own mother. Had two out of three of the homicidal triad, the cruelty to animals and bedwetting. Lacked comfort and stability. I wouldn't exactly say he was sociopathic because he clearly felt some remorse for what he did or he wouldn't keep insisting he stay in prison. Held anger towards his mother. He was a sexual sadist, disassociate personality disorder, psychopathic tendencies, and extremely intelligent. The disassociative personality disorder makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, because it was almost like he would have to disassociate to do it when he snaps to do it. And then he comes back and he's like, oh, well, yeah. And he like called in the murders. I think it's safe to say, too, um, that killing the co-eds was a way to get back at his mother because she valued them so much, especially over him, that he's taking something valuable away from her. But even like having sex with people's heads where she was verbally abusive. And he's basically, like... Disrespecting them in the most heinous way. Giving back what she gave him. Yes. Yeah, he was very, um... Uh... Revengeful Mm. in in his murders. But her murder was way worse. Like, way worse than the others. Not saying that the others weren't bad, because clearly any murder is bad, but... He definitely displayed that anger, that anger of his mother. That final kill was brutal because of the anger he had that held was, in. That was his mother, right? The final kill? Uh, well, second, he killed her friend just to kind of help cover it up. But oh. but basically, Claire Nell's murder was the end point. I'm wondering if that was supposed to be the first one and he did all the other ones. He had too. to work his way up to it. Yeah. Yep. So, in conclusion, Edmund Kemper, in my opinion, is a clear-cut example of nurture. It was his home environment that contributed greatly to his behavior and the way he thought as an adult. He never was given love, support, and stability as a child. Every murder he committed, he was picturing his mother. Anger turned to arousal, which was more for humiliating her. In his childhood, had be- if his childhood had been different, with a loving mother or father who was around, it- around and cared and had stability, maybe his life and the lives of the 10 people he killed would be different. He also seems to lack the God complex that the other three seem to have. 
That narcissist. Yeah. Yes. He doesn't have the narcissist. I can clearly say he doesn't have the narcissistic personality disorder. Yeah. The other three? Absolutely. Yeah. The God complex. Yeah. Um, for me, it's, I feel bad for him because he did have such a shitty childhood. And there was part of me, and I think I've mentioned this to Matt in the past, that when I was contemplating covering Edmund Kemper in full, kind of wanted to reach out to him and say, what are your thoughts on, if you had had a stable childhood, if you had the white picket fence, you had the mother who hugged you and gave you kisses and baked you cookies and gave you everything you wanted and a father who was stuck who stuck around because you know he was happy with your mom and happy with your sisters and happy with everything would you have turned out this way what do you think do you think you would have still been who you who you turned out to be or do you think you would have been a more normal guy who ended up with a wife and his kids of his own well i think that's pretty prevalent in in how well he did in the the psych the tescadero yeah yeah and then in jail. Yeah. And that he craved routine and um, acknowledgement and, underst- and wanted to be understood. And he craved all of those basic things that your parents are supposed to give you. And safety. Safety. Yeah. Safety, security. Yeah. Stability. Um, yeah. Stability, routine. And yeah. to be given, acknowledged like when he's doing something well, to be given praise and to be able to earn privileges. Mm-hmm. And that does a lot for your self-esteem. Yeah. And your your character in general. And when you look at what he also accomplished in prison by doing those books for the blind on tape. Um, sorry, visually impaired. Um, that shows that he has compassion for others. And he had the need to help. And he, Yeah, he had that need to help. Like he himself saw the value in books and reading and learning. And he wanted that spread to people who might not be able to do that. Like some books might not come out in Braille. Or maybe people don't, people who are just recently blind maybe not understand how to read it yet. You know, it he, gives, he's showing that compassion towards others. Yeah, and he were where he wanted to help and to, had like that last, one of the last lines you said about um, to keep murderers alive so that you can learn and stop other people from mm-hmm. committing the crimes. Yeah. Where the other three we discussed, they only either lied or blamed like, others. Yeah, what was it G- Gacy, right? And he was the one that was the clown. That yeah, we ta- yeah, like total front, so that he wouldn't look bad. Had nothing to do with him wanting or getting joy out of entertaining others. It was so that he wouldn't look bad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I I don't want to downplay like I yes I'm I'm basically boasting Kemper as a decent person now, not a decent person, but a better human being than he started. And I just don't want anybody out there to think that that. Like, Gates, the victims that he took from this world because it's, that's not the case. I totally feel bad for the victims and their families and I understand that it's, it's this, if you hear me saying that I respect Kemper, I respect him who he is now for the fact that he's acknowledged his wrongdoings and he's accepted responsibilities, whether he's full of shit or not. If he's full of shit, he's got his all hose and that's a possibility. But who wants to be hanging out in prison? Right? So to me, he, right? he's like, not. Yeah. And for if I was one of the victim's family members, I'd be like, huh, you know, we learned something from this guy. Not just the the evil, but we've learned something. Just because you understand why somebody did what they did doesn't take away from they what did they it. did. Exactly. It's just understanding. I don't why. respect what he did. Yeah. I respect who he realized he is. 
and he realized and asked for help and he's he doesn't he's not asking for full rehabilitation so he can be released he's asking for rehabilitation but keep me in here you know because clearly it didn't work the last time but he also didn't give it a chance the last time you know he, he knew how to manipulate that via Tescadero psychiatrist he didn't really give it a chance to actually talk out his problems but also a Tescadero did try to help him by saying do not put him with his mother and they were overrun by the uh, California Youth Authority saying oh here you go but if he's 20 he would be considered but because he was criminally insane oh I understand right they have to release him into custody of somebody okay if that was the case I would have released him to his older sister yeah you know Susan um she could have taken custody of him. She would have been 25. She would have been an adult. She could have taken custody knowing what her mother was like. You know, Lynn would have been too young. She would have been, what, 18? So, obviously, and she's the one who spoke up the most regarding um, the treatment of him from their mother. Um, so, to me, that also validates his story. Having his sister speak out about how their mother treated him validates his story it's not just a one-sided hey this is me i have mommy issues to the profilers or like the last one the women women didn't want me and they embarrassed me and poor me couldn't get a girlfriend so sorry honey yeah this one you kind of feel bad because like nobody should have a childhood like that no and it i i do i wish there was a way he could have found a different way to deal with his anger and his issues I'm sure we all do, but that's where the disassociation would come in. That's yeah, he would have to have that because also disassociative uh, personality disorder, I believe, is also a trauma response. Mm-hmm. Um, to uh, you almost black out. Yeah, I mean, we all disassociate at some level because, like, I was driving here, and. And I'm thinking and thinking, and all of a sudden, I'm like, crap, I'm getting off on the link and not on Burlington Street. Whoops. <laughs> oh, that's what took you so long. Yep. <laughs> so there's times where I drive to work, and be- I don't know if it's because I drive the same route to work. Autopilot. I'm on autopilot, and I don't know how I got there. I was going to work. Well, I, I can explain <laughs> that later, but. That's what was happening. There could be a podcast all about that. Time perception. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've driven from Smithville all the way to Burlington. And not know how I got there. <laughs> yep. And I don't always... And back then, I didn't always take the same way. Sometimes I would take 20 all the way to Centennial and come down and then do the beach. Or sometimes I'd go down to Grinsby and just take the service road all the way. I just... But I because I when I lived in Smithville, I kept changing my, my route. But, really not relevant. But there was times where I would just not know how I got there. <laughs> Fuck off, Matthew. Anyways, you guys have a great evening, and we will see you next week for something completely different. Have a good one.